As Connor said, my name's Kim, and I am going to read our scripture today, which is uh, Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will also come, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may go ahead and have a seat. Thank you, Kim. Good morning. My name's Tim. I'm the lead pastor here. It's really good to be with you this morning. Uh, I, uh, at, Connor got to share a lot of things uh, that, are, that are going on in the next few weeks, and uh, I, I get to add one to it. Um, in two weeks from today, in two weeks from today, it's uh, the beginning of uh, Holy Week. Uh, it's kind of traditionally called Triumphal Entry or Palm Sunday. Uh, it's the day that we're starting our week of praying uh, every hour of every day around the clock. Um, and so because we're, not because of, but just in addition to starting that, we're, we're going to have a really fun time that Sunday morning. And if you were around January 1st, we did a brunch on the first day of the year, which was a Sunday. Uh, we're going to do the same thing on Palm Sunday. Um, and so both at 915 and then we're going to do one at 11 as well. And we're going to fill this room with tables and food. And we're going to get to just share a meal together as we kick off Holy Week. So here's what I'd like to invite you to do. First of all, just plan on being there. Would you pick one, whether 915 or 11? We, if we put tables in here, we won't be able to fit everyone. We kind of got really close to that problem on January 1st. Uh, and so we're going to do both 915 and 11. And so would you pick one uh, and then sign up to bring something? So there's a way to do that online. If you go on our website and click on Palm Sunday and, and look at that, I don't know. Oh, here we Well, yeah, 
If you go online, you'll see that. Pick one, sign up to, to volunteer. Here's the other, to bring something. We, we also have some needs just to serve on that day as well. And so if you could look through when you're, when you're there, uh, a way to serve, if you can do that. So with having two gatherings on that day and Easter, uh, we, we have more opportunity and more need to serve. And so if you can serve maybe with a welcome team or with kids or something like that, uh, on one of those two Sundays, that would be a huge help in a way that you can kind of contribute to what's going on. And here's the other thing is if you would think about who you would like to invite to come for one or both of those Sundays. So either Palm Sunday, uh, the 2nd of April, two weeks from today, or on Easter Sunday. And Connor mentioned baptism and really exciting just to hear about, I think, I think I've heard of four ongoing conversations about folks within our community that are considering or either already committed or considering to, to get baptized on that Sunday. And so just really excited about that and what God's doing in people's lives and how we're seeing him work. It's in, in deep encouragement. So all that to say, if, if you're like, hey, I want a shirt, I want to get baptized that day, you won't be the only one. There'll be other people getting baptized that day with you. So cool. Keep praying for that. And hopefully we have more, more people get baptized that day. Let's do this. Let's pray and then let's look at that story that Jesus told that Kim just read that is in Luke chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 19. I'm going to pray and then we're going we're gonna to start and look at this text together, this story. Let's pray. God, we again just want to say that we know and believe and are convinced that you are a good, a good father, that you know us, that you love us, that you have our best in mind that you see all of who we are and you still love us, that you are a God of tremendous and unending mercy and grace and forgiveness and kindness and justice and power. And so we, with our whole lives and our whole being, want to worship you in this place and in this time. And so God, would you be lifted high and glorified and honored in our time here together? And Holy Spirit, in order for us to do that, we need you to work and move in us. And so, Holy Spirit, would you have free reign in this time? Would you work and move? Would you wake us up and sharpen our minds as we look to your word? Would you soften our hearts at the very same time so that we can actually become different people, the people that you've designed us to be? We can't do that with hard hearts, so would you soften our hearts? In Jesus, you are our Savior and our King, our Rescuer and our Redeemer. Would we hear from you right now? As you tell this story, we want to listen. Help us to see something new and to see it clearly. Help us to see you as we read this story together. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I had a, a friend ask me a, a little while ago. It was kind of an out of the, just an unexpected question, but they just, uh, I don't know, I don't even remember why they asked it, but they just said, hey, what's the, what's the best meal that you've ever had? Like not, not just the best tasting, but like the best experience. What's the best experience meal that, that you've ever had? Like the most uh, kind of extravagant dining experience. What was the best, uh, maybe luxurious meal that you, you ever had? And what immediately popped into my mind was a little over 25 years ago, Abby and I got married and went on a honeymoon. And for part of our honeymoon, we stayed in a bread and breakfast at, uh, outside of San Francisco. And we drove into downtown San Francisco uh, one afternoon. And uh, the reason we drove in actually is unrelated, but I just kind of want to share this, so I'm going to. But uh, the uh, Phantom of the Opera is a, is a thing, is a, is a show. If you don't know, it's been playing, I think, for 35 years. And uh, we, we got tickets to a matinee show. Um, we, were, we were very young, 
and very poor, and that's all, all we, could, we could get was a matinee show. And so we went into to downtown San Francisco before the show and, and got lunch. And we went up, we, we were dressed up like we were going to uh, a, an evening show, which we didn't realize until we had gone to the matinee show. There's, apparently there's a difference. So families take kids and like wear shorts. To, to, and I wore a suit that I thought I had to buy in order to go to, anyways, that's unrelated to food. We go, we go in for uh, like a late lunch and uh, we, we go up to the, the, one of the highest uh, buildings in, in downtown San Francisco and, uh, and, and go to this restaurant and we, we get the, the menu and start looking through and we're like, oh, okay, um, we, okay, uh, we, can, we can get a, a, a thing or two maybe. And it was one of those ones where you, uh, uh, the meat is like a separate thing. Like restaurants I grew up going to, like meat came on a plate with a bunch of other food. This was meat like, all, is it a la carte? Is that the word? I just still don't know and don't really care. But if I wanted a potato with my meat, I had to order it separate. And, and there's this thing is when you order separate food, you actually have to pay for that one too. So when I paid for this, I didn't get this. And then I had to pay for vegetables if I wanted those. And um, the water was $12. No, it wasn't. But so it was one of those kind of restaurants, which, you know, some of you have been to, and some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. And that's just the fun of community. We are at all different places in our life. But that was news. That was an education for me that you had to order all this separate. But it wasn't the price of the food, and it wasn't that it was separate. Here's what made it extravagant and luxurious is after we got done ordering, we had eaten so much of the bread and the butter that was free on the table already that a specially trained employee came out from a hidden place and he walked out and didn't say anything but moved our plates and took out like a weapon that was this little metal bar and he scraped the breadcrumbs like this and scooped them into a special container and then disappeared and left. Have you ever had that at a meal before? Come on. Okay, so you know, okay, I'm not making this up. This is a real thing. That was the most luxurious meal that I've, I've ever had. That's the only meal that, I think there was another one, actually, when my, when my mom turned 70, that same guy showed up. It was in Denver. It was really weird, and he did this, and, and uh, so I don't know if you've had that guy come to your table at some point, but that was like a whole part of society that I didn't know existed, and that, to me, is still like the, the marker of an extravagant meal, luxurious meal. On the opposite end of the spectrum, if that, is, if that is luxury and if that is the upper echelon of society and that is a sign of wealth in some way, the opposite experience, the opposite end of the spectrum for me in my life that I, that I point to is it was about four years later, uh, Abby and I got to go on a missions trip with a team to Cambodia and Phnom Penh is the capital of Cambodia, and we were in Phnom Penh, and the organization we were working with helped train and educate people in uh, awareness of AIDS and HIV. And so we got to go with them as they shared information and trained people to be aware of AIDS and HIV. And one of the most at-risk people were, were poverty-stricken wives and mothers who lived on the edges of society, but in the center of the capital city. And we walked through Phnom Penh and we walked down a street and then we walked down an alley and then we kicked out right on the river that runs through Phnom Penh. 
And the water at that time of the year was disgusting. I don't know if it's like that all the time. But worse than the color of the water was that when we got down to the river and there were makeshift um, things in the water, what's the word I'm looking for? That you walk on. Dock. Floating wood. And we walked out on those and there was these little huts that were built with spare wood that they would find and spare tin that they could find for a roof. And there was trash and debris and all sorts of disgusting stuff on the edge of the water that went out into the water underneath the dock. And we walked down to the end of the dock and we walked into a home and we sat down and heard stories from women young and old whose husbands had brought AIDS into their home and HIV into their home and infected them. And so how they raised kids and did life now with AIDS and the, the level of the poverty that they lived in was shocking to me. I've seen pictures of poverty worse than that, but that's the, that's, was a, a floor of a hut at the end of a dock in Phnom Penh that I was sitting on is the most that I've experienced and seen personally. Those are two, at least in my mind, and hopefully you, examples and pictures of extreme of wealth and poverty. Jesus paints a picture of wealth and poverty and he, and he presents them and he tells a story of them to contrast them for a reason. And it actually doesn't have a lot to do with money. It seems like it would. But Jesus paints these two pictures and he contrasts them with one another and then he moves them into eternity in order to talk about eternity. Jesus talks about the tangible realities of wealth in this world and luxury in this world and poverty and suffering in this world in order to talk about something that is not of this world. And we're gonna look at this story and walk through it. And what we're gonna see is that Jesus goes to three locations. He describes three locations so that he can describe two experiences. And then we're gonna end with the reason that he does. And what it is, is it's the reason that changes everything. It's the difference between these two experiences spread across these three locations. So in Luke chapter 16, verse 19 starts this. There's a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. What, he, what he's describing is, is just what I described, a, a, a sign of luxury. He goes into a little more detail and he describes the guy's clothes. He describes not only his outer clothes and the colors of them, but when he talks about linen, he's actually talking about really expensive and handmade and fine, pricey underwear, if you can believe that. Jesus is saying, this guy wears the best clothes and he eats the best meals and he lives in luxury. And luxury is, for that word, that word actually there describes the kind of food that he would have had every day. It would have been a specially prepared, rare food every day. That was just his norm. That is the, the place that he lived and how he experienced life. And to contrast that, he points and he names this guy, Lazarus. And he says, Lazarus, which is interesting because Jesus is telling this story or this parable, a story that describes an experience in this world, and then he moves it to after this world, but it has a, has a story, it has a meaning for us spiritually. And so Jesus tells a lot of these, some very short, some long and involved, but he, he never uses a name, but he does use, the, he names a guy in, in a parable for the first time ever, Lazarus, 
which actually translates and means God helps or God is my help. The name Lazarus means God helps. And so right from the beginning, he's contrasting not just their outer experience, but he's pointing to something internally more significant. And when he describes Lazarus, he just, he, he's, he's a beggar, he's outside, he actually is at the door of the rich guy. So they see and know of each other. They don't know them personally, they just see and pass each other on a regular basis. And that he gets the food that this guy throws away, which is like, well, if he's eating the best of food, maybe he gets his leftovers and he's not really hungry one night and he might get some really good food. And then I, I read somewhere that they said, at that day and age, the real wealthy, this is so bizarre to me, I've never heard this before, would wash their hands and then the extremely wealthy would dry their hands on bread. I don't, I don't know if, I don't, I don't know how that ever came to be or if they're like the extremely wealthy just will not touch dish towels or I mean like linen napkins or I don't know what, but it's, it, so what this is actually describing is that rich dude washes his hands, dries it on bread somehow and tosses it out and Lazarus picks it up and, and eats it. That's what he's looking forward to eating. Jesus is making a point to say, these are the two absolute extremes of society when it comes to monetary wealth. That's his point. He goes on and says this in verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, the image of heaven, Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. The three places that Jesus is pointing to, one is, is this planet, this earth, where we live. This, this first century, he's, he's pointing to a place in the Mediterranean, he's pointing to Israel, that, that land, that's, he's describing earth here, where we are. Then he's pointing to heaven, described as, as Abraham's side. And then the third place he's pointing to is Hades or hell. And without getting into a lot of detail, it's, it's basically a description of not heaven. Not earth and not heaven. It's going somewhere else. It goes to hell. And we can, there's a lot of how the Old Testament describes that. Now it's described in the New Testament. When we know at the end of the New Testament, we talk about heaven. And certainly as followers of Jesus, he, he trained his disciples and us today to pray, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth here as it is in heaven. That more of heaven would come into, into our existence here and not more of hell. There's enough hell already here, but hell is a separate place and what Jesus is doing is saying, these are three separate places. These are three separate locations. You both shared time together in this one. But when this life was over, you went to two different places in this story. Heaven or Abraham's side and not heaven or hell. Interesting enough, Jesus speaks more about hell than any other person in the Bible. Jesus speaks more about hell than any other person, any other author in the Bible. In the words of Jesus, and again, this is, this is read, this whole section is, is read, meaning it's Jesus' words. More than double any other voice in Scripture, Jesus speaks about hell. We'll find out why in a little bit. But those are the three places he's pointing to. And then he gets into describing their two experiences. Verse 24 says this, So he, and he here uh, is, uh, is the rich man. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, 
Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides, all this between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. If you're just hearing that for now the second time, Kim read it, now I just read it. If you've not read this before, if you've not thought about it before, it could very easily seem like Jesus is saying, hey, you got really good things in human terms, that your life was good, you were wealthy and you had great food and a great home and great linen and great underwear and I mean, life was great for you. And so, because it was so great for you, when you die here, you go to the bad place. But if life was really hard here and you suffered, when you die, you go to the good place. It could seem like that's what Jesus is saying, but he's not. What he is saying is that they have two very different experiences. That when they lived in this world, they had different experiences. And then after this world, on into eternity, things actually reversed and they switched. And so you had a wealthy guy that ended up in hell and you had a poor man who ended up in heaven. But this is not about how much money they owned when they were living on this planet. It's actually about how much money owned them. Jesus is contrasting not the amount of money, but their response to it. Don't think for a minute that if somebody would have offered Lazarus a paid off home, a steady income, good food, that he wouldn't have taken it. He, he wanted those things. But they didn't rule his life. They didn't own him. And what we find out about the rich man is that it actually owned him. His wealth defined him. He was owned by it. We've, we've come through the last few weeks. Uh, Jesus has been talking a lot about material wealth in this world. He, he actually talks about money a lot throughout the New Testament. The records that we have of what Jesus says includes a lot of talk about money, not as much talk about his kingdom. But there is this link that money has this unique ability to take power over our life. I don't know that there's anyone in here that would, would debate that. I think we know that, we feel that. We feel it because it is a very, very, very important part and significant part of our life in this world. And so Jesus speaks to it regularly because it can easily become too much for us, particularly in our society with our history and our values and our marketing and our proclivity to feed greed and to make us believe and to train us to believe and to lure our eyes to see things that cost money. And so we have to get more money in order to buy those things. And we know that our culture operates on that so much. And so Jesus is regularly speaking against that and saying, those things don't actually give you a good life. Maybe check that. In this life, we can be fooled into believing that we do have a good life. And so Jesus is contrasting these two experiences to say, this isn't all there is. In, in Luke chapter 12, verses 33 and 34, just a couple chapters back, in Jesus' words, he has said this. 
Verse 33 and 34, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven. He's talking something eternal. He's talking on a different timeline than just this life and death. Treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. And get this, this is the important part. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I, uh, I've been familiar with that line, that verse for a long, long time. And uh, I, I, I thought, you know what? Jesus probably just, he gets his words tangled a little bit sometimes. And what he meant to say was, where your heart is, there your treasure is also. The things that you care about, the things that you're passionate about, the things that you, that you value, that you wanna see happen, you, you, you decide that and then you bring your resources and you put them there. So where your heart is, where your vision is, where your values are, you bring your resources. And Jesus actually in an, doesn't get his words tripped up at all. Jesus is far more aware of how he's designed us and how we're created and how we work as human beings that where our treasure is, our heart, our vision, our values end up following that. That's just how we work. Where we put our sight lines, where we put our time and our energy and our money where we put our treasure, our heart will go there. And here's how you can know this. Try putting your treasure somewhere else. Start making an investment in something else. Has any, have any of you, I was talking to a, a guy, uh, we were t- well, I don't know if you know this, but there's a few basketball games going on right now. It's called um, March Gladness, Madness, March Madness. And um, I, I, uh, I hate it because it makes me feel inept and dumb. And actually, if we could just, if we could spend a few minutes talking about this, <laughs> I'd like to feel like I know what I'm doing. And I like sports a lot and I watch them a lot and I read about them a lot. And I look at ESPN more than any other location in all of the internets. And Abby is again beating me in my March Madness bracket. (laughs) So if we can take some time in silence and pray for my bracket and not her bracket right now. Okay. She's not here right now. And uh, don't tell her I said that, but it's, it's really hard for me. You could, you could pray for me. The worst part, we have them like taped up in the kitchen. I can't alter it. I can't cheat. And she doesn't care a lick about basketball. She cares about me cussing. So, okay, that was, that was this part. Now, where are we? What are we talking about? Basketball. Oh, I was talking to a guy about basketball and he was saying, I can't, I can't bet. I can't. I can't go, because, you know, so much of betting is, is legal now. And he's like, I, I can't bet because what happens? I've, I've had free op- options to, you know, hey, bet this. And there's all these commercials to get you to bet. And what it is, is you make a little bit 
or you, you get a little bit closer to thinking you can make a little bit, and all of a sudden, your sight lines start to go to it, and your mind starts to go to it, and you start reading about it, and you start paying attention to it, and all of a sudden, where you didn't even know you had a little bit of treasure, now you've got a little bit of treasure, and all of a sudden, your heart gets drawn to it, and he's like, I can't even, I can't even start, I can't even look. Because where our treasure is, our heart is also, and Jesus knows this, and he, he warns against it. Last week, we looked at uh, a story of a shrewd manager that is a wonderfully bizarre story. But the, the call in that is that this dishonest manager who had one day left used his last hours on the job to invest in the future. And Jesus uses as a parallel to say, look into eternity and use what you have now for the things that matter in eternity, which are people and relationships. And now Jesus is talking about another rich man and a poor man. And he's saying this rich man did not use his wealth for the things of eternity. He did not use his wealth to think about the future. He thought about the now, and then he found out that now is not all there is. And so as Jesus talks about the contrast between these two, two men in this world and in eternity, what he's saying is, what Jesus is saying is, this world is not all there is. There's this phenomenal example of the lie that this world and this culture teaches and tells us and pulls us into, that we live and we die and that's all there is. So live for the living now because there's nothing later on. And there's this phenomenal picture of this in this, uh, it's, an, it's a show on Apple, it's the, it's the morning show, it's the season one. And this, this young uh, employee, the staff person at, a, at the morning show that the show is all about, gets into a relationship and she's dating someone and she finds that her heart is drawn towards this, this person and she's falling in love and she cares about him and she wants the relationship to continue. And the, the plot of the show is threatening that relationship and she's sitting with a coworker at a late drink at night out in New York City and saying, I'm, you know, I'm torn up about this. I really, I love him. I want it to continue. And her coworker says to her, does that really matter? All you're experiencing is a chemical reaction in your brain. You can get another one. Even if that was true, wouldn't we want it to not be true? Everything in our fiber of our being says there is more to me than just a physical reaction. And when I'm in a relationship with another person, and certainly when it goes to the point of romantic attraction and talking about a future together, to tell me that that is just a chemical reaction, that I could just stop here and go find with somebody else, every part of us says no. And what Jesus is saying is you are not just simply the organ of a brain and the organ of a heart, but there is something more to who you are, that you are a soul, that I created you, and I call you son, and I call you daughter, and I call you child, because you are not just a physical being because there is not just the life and death of these years on this planet, but there is a much wider picture of all of eternity. And you are called for something, not just for here and now, but for all of eternity. And so when you are living now, live with a perspective for all of eternity. Jesus is contrasting a rich man and a poor man to make the point that this world is not all there is. And therefore, money in this world is not all there is. And so let's use and leverage and steward money as a resource that has eternal implications, not 
as an earthly reward. The rich man says this. Verse 27, after he's told from Jesus that no, we can't cross over. You can't get to where you are in hell to where he is in heaven. The rich man answered, verse 27, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. They will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Like Jesus is telling the story, but it's really hard to be like for Abe in this situation or for, for Jesus. Like Jesus, come on. Like throw the guy a bone. Like he's kind of sorry. It's, he's, he's sad at least. Like, can we help him out? Like, he doesn't like Hades. Hell's bad. He's describing it. And this isn't literal necessarily, but he, he's describing fire and torment. Jesus, help, like, help him out. And the answer is, tragically, the answer is no. And Jesus has Abraham speak in the story, like, no. And not just no, like, like it would be... Like, empathy's a really big deal, right? And, and Abraham's, like, got zero empathy here. Nope, sorry, chasm, too far. Nope, you got, you got a book. Go read Moses and the prophets. Like, what is, why? The one reason that Jesus is telling the story and the, the one the one thing that makes all the difference in the world, the one thing that changes everything is, is Jesus is, is trying to, to remind us and trying to let us see that all of us are not the rich guy or the, or the poor guy. All of us are the five brothers because we're still here. And so how are we responding to Moses and the prophets? And you're like, well, I just read Moses today, so I can tell you. No, you didn't? Okay, you didn't read, did you read the prophets today? No, see, the point that Jesus is making is that the way that we're wired and who we are and how we're created and how we function is that the fear of hell, see if this rings true, the fear of hell does not warm your heart, transform your heart, change your heart. The fear of hell doesn't actually drive you to Jesus. In fact, he also goes on to say, if someone just arise from the dead, if someone was just to rise from the dead, that doesn't mean that you would all of a sudden fall in love with Jesus. Like, that would be way impressive. And you might like contemplate it for a day or a week or a month or maybe a year. But somebody just simply rising from the dead, it happened a couple of times. The, the people were raised from the In fact, there's a separate guy, not related to this one, a guy named Lazarus. Obviously, he's using his, but there's a story of Lazarus rising from the dead. The whole town didn't follow Jesus for the rest of their life. Jesus is saying that the fear of hell and a person rising from the dead does not transform our hearts. That's just not how we as humans work. There is something that changes our hearts. And it's one thing, and it's a really big deal, and the God of the universe embodies it 
and gives it to us constantly. And that's love. Love transforms us. It moves us. It changes us. It brings us to life. It makes us different people. It makes us want to be better. Jesus is saying in this story that's not true, not real people, it's a parable. But when this life ends, it continues into eternity. And God loves us so much that he wants us with him for all of eternity. And as all of us are one of the five brothers, that we're still here and can listen and make decisions, that Jesus is putting his own voice through the voice of the rich man, saying, pay attention to Moses and the prophets. And he's not saying just Moses and the prophets as if there's like some secret code in Moses that we missed or if we read one prophet the right way. He's saying throughout the story of scripture, what we see is on repeat, story after story after story of a loving God who comes after his sons and daughters. That the God of the universe loves us. This guy Spurgeon says it this way, and he lived about 150 years ago, so give me some grace here on the language, but he says this, when God's whole creation, having been ransacked by the hand of science, has only tested to the truth of revelation, when the whole history of buried cities and departed nations has but preached out the truth that the Bible was true, when every strip of land in the far off east has been an exposition and a confirmation of the prophecies of scripture, if men, can we add in women, if all people are yet unconvinced, do ye suppose that one dead man rising from the tomb would convince them? No, it's a rhetorical no. There's not proof. There's not a person rising from the dead. What matters is that Jesus died for us, demonstrating his love for me and you. Jesus talks more about hell than any other voice in scripture because he took it on, because he visited because he took on the judgment on himself. I love describing Jesus as a judge. And we hate the idea of judgment, but Jesus comes as the judge and he looks around and his way of bringing justice is by taking it all on himself, that he took on all the judgment on himself. And in a few weeks, we get to celebrate the resurrection, the rising from the dead, but we can celebrate that because he gave his life and he died and he paid the price. Demonstrating his love for me and for you. Details, pictures, depictions of hell that strike fear in humanity does not draw our hearts to God. It doesn't soften our hearts. Simply a miracle, which is not simple, but in and of itself rising from the dead doesn't necessarily draw us to God but the reality that there is a loving creator God who sees and knows each and every one of us and comes after us and sacrifices his one and only son is the story that pivots all of history on the death and resurrection on Jesus of God saying to his creation and more importantly to his people that he loves us. And so Jesus tells this bizarre story that goes to three different places, that describes two men's, 
different experiences to say that he has paid the price and demonstrated his love for me and for you. And so join him in his eternal work that starts now and continues on through all of eternity and use whatever resources that we have at our capability and in our hand that we get to steward and decide for purposes that will make a difference for all of eternity. We're gonna continue to sing. And as we shared last week and as we will through these weeks of Lent as we count down to, to Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, that we wanna come to this table with a, with a sense of confession. And if that word is somehow off-putting to you, that's probably okay. It's meant to be a little bit. The idea of confession and coming to this table, we're declaring that we need a savior, that we can't be our own savior. Confession can be confessing things that are true, agreeing with God in that sense. That God, you're good is a confession. God, I'm a sinner and I've walked away from you and I've fallen away from you and I've done this and I've done that and I've, that are not in line with what you're calling me to. And so you come and confess it. And because Jesus died on the cross and paid the ultimate price, he lavishes his grace and his forgiveness on us. And so we come to this table as a way of forming our own hearts around him and his story. And we take a cup that represents his blood shed on the cross and we take a little cracker that represents his body broken on the cross. You can take it here, you can take it to a side, bring it to the steps of the stage, go back to your seat, however you wanna take it. But I invite you to come confessing and being reminded of the good news of Jesus. Jesus, as we come this morning, would you remind us again, deep in our hearts, that you love us. You love us and you want us to spend all of eternity with you. That when we think about the wealth that this world offers, it's nothing compared to the riches of your presence, both here and on into eternity. Jesus, would you form us even in this moment as we sing, as we come to these tables.